You're listening to Environmental Investing, the show where we explore market-based approaches to environmental challenges. I'm Aaron Appleton, and on today's show, Building a Wildlife Economy, how can markets for consumptive and non-consumptive wildlife use generate conservation and investment returns? Nature is the capital upon which all economies and all nations are actually dependent. $7.2 trillion are brought to the United States alone by ocean-related businesses. We have 38 established environmental financial markets. Energy returned on energy invested. Cleaner company had a higher P.E. ratio. On this episode, we have economist Dr. Frank Voris joining us from the ALU campus in Kigali, Rwanda. Frank has more than three decades of international experience in sustainable development and sustainable business. This includes setting up the economics and business programs at the International Union for Conservation of Nature, working as the chief economist for the African Wildlife Foundation, and as the CEO of Earthwatch Institute. He is currently the executive director of EarthMind, which focuses on the nexus between commerce and conservation. Thank you for joining us, Frank. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. To start things off, I'd love for you to give a brief overview of the work that you're currently involved in. Like, what is your role at Africa Wildlife Economy Institute and EarthMind, and what's some of the work that you're doing with ALU? Okay, yeah, it's a, it's a busy time at the moment. With the first one, the African Wildlife Economy Institute, this is a new think tank that was setting up at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. And Stellenbosch University is one of the old uh, universities of the country and a major research center on the continent. It's near Cape Town. Uh, the mission of the African Wildlife Economy Institute is to um, support improved governance of wildlife economies for biodiversity conservation and inclusive sustainable development. It um, focuses Africa-wide, not just South Africa, and it aims to look at this interface between wildlife conservation and economic development. Um, behind all that, EarthMind is a little NGO that's based in Switzerland that we set up about a decade ago that, as you said, Aaron works on the interface between conservation and commerce. It has a global remit. We work on things in Asia. We work on things um, in, in Europe and in Africa. But as you can see at the moment, the flavor of the month and the real focus is on supporting work, academic research, and academic training in Africa on, on the wildlife economy. Um, so I'm curious to hear a little bit about your background. Like, how did you first get interested in this work, and what led you to where you are now? Oh, my gosh. Um, so how did I get here? That's a good question. I guess there's two sort of tipping points for me. The first was in my university program back in the United States, and the second was in South Africa. The first one was I was um, doing a PhD program at the University of Colorado at Boulder and was really privileged to have been a student of Kenneth Boulding. Now, he's not a name that's widely known today, but Kenneth Boulding is, is the father of ecological economics. He wrote books back in the 60s about Spaceship Earth, about um, the bioeconomy, and he was one of the first real thinkers to look at the relationship between society and the environment from an ecological ecosystem perspective. So he got me hooked on, on, 
on the role of natural resources in development and the interface between our, our social systems and our ecological systems. The second one was when I went to Southern Africa to work at the University of Witwatersrand, a big a mouthful, Fitz Universities in Johannesburg. I went out one of the first weekends to a little private game farm near Kruger National Park called Natten's Bush Camp. And it was run by a couple, Bambi and Jill, Jillian Natten, and they had a couple kids, and they just had a little small business, but the small business included elephants and rhinos and, and lions and so on. And, and as an American coming across to Africa to see all these animals was spectacular, but to see them supplied by a small business, not by a Yellowstone or Yosemite, like we have in the States, or a Serengeti or a Kruger, but actually private provision of nature conservation. And it was mostly based on an ecotourism model, though we would have the odd impala for dinner or the odd uh, warthog for dinner. And I realized that nature conservation wasn't just a public sector thing. In fact, it is a private good. We consume tourism and we consume wildlife products. And that got me hooked. That got me hooked on the whole field of working on the role of the market and market economies to conserve our planet. Now, the, the topic of our show today is the wildlife economy. But this is a fairly new term. What, what really is a wildlife economy? I had this question asked to me a couple weeks ago in Stellenbosch. We've, in our documents for the African Wildlife Economy Institute, we've defined wildlife, we've defined the economy, but we haven't put the words together and said the two words mean X, but let's give it a try. So by wildlife, what we, we refer to is all wild species and systems. So wildlife is it's often thought of just, just terrestrial, but we have marine wildlife. Um, we have the habitats the wildlife live in and so on. So for us, wildlife is just a more populist way of saying biodiversity. Biodiversity is a very scientific or even a bureaucratic word, and wildlife is what captures the soul better. Economy is about the production of goods and services and the trade of goods and services and the exchange and market processes. So wildlife economy is where is the interface between the production of wildlife and the utilization of wildlife in a context in which producers and consumers can voluntarily trade goods and services. So one wildlife economy that's very well known, again here in an African context, is um, photo safaris. You currently have in the world today a ban in the trade, international trade of elephant products. And that includes ivory, elephant ivory, meat, and hide. But there's no ban in elephant services. And so there's a very big and prosperous wildlife economy around people who will come to Africa to look at elephants, to view them, to take pictures of them. And so that's a version of it, the tourism sector, the ecotourism sector. Mm-hmm. And there's other sectors involved with um, consumptive tourism, which would include hunting, subsistence use, which would include subsistence hunting, the production of meat, hide, leather, bone trade, and so on. And so the wildlife economy is the use of the natural resources through market processes in a way that you sustain the production processes, sustain the wildlife, and actually enhance them, and you create value and create jobs for people. And can you explain a little bit more about why it's important to create a wildlife economy, uh, especially from a conservation or an investing standpoint? This is a, if I can say the word right, anthropocentric. This is a very anthropocentric concept of a wildlife economy. From a conservation perspective on this, if wildlife doesn't 
make sense for people, people will replace it with things that do make sense. So right now, if you take, well, take Kenya again, if you look at the population of wildlife on the landscape, either number of animals, and we're talking about large um, megafauna here, but you know, elephants and rhinos and kudus and so on, or if you look in, in weight, in the biomass, wildlife is small compared to the livestock, compared to cattle, goats, sheep, and so on. And what we've seen is that people are, in Africa, replacing wild resources with domesticated resources because they can make a living out of it. They have an economy in it. And so we're arguing that a wildlife economy at one level is a way in which we can conserve wildlife. Use it or lose it is the expression that we use in countries like Zimbabwe. And so the wildlife economy concept is, in a sense, critical for the conservation of the species. But we also suspect, and of course this is to be studied and to be analyzed, that the utilization of natural resources may make more economic sense. It's a better use of the landscape. Wild animals are more drought resilient, they're more climate resilient. Um, They do conversion of, if you will, grass to meat more efficiently than a cow does and so on and so forth. So we think that uh, a refocus on the use of wildlife may make both ecological sense and economic sense. And earlier you had mentioned that activities like hunting or wildlife ranching can help to develop local economies. Uh, But could you foresee any potential negative externalities, say on the environment or even socially? Or could this help overcome different environmental problems? Okay, so let's first of all, let's unpack this term wildlife ranching. It's a term that's being used in South Africa, uh, Southern Africa, and they used to use the term game farming, and now they use the term wildlife ranching more. First, the word game to the word wildlife is a little bit different, and then the concept of farming the animal versus ranching the animal. And so what's impacted in the wildlife ranch is some type of an extensive wildlife system as opposed to intensive breeding, and it's a system in which you're actually using the animals in a way that maintains somehow the wildness. Um, so it's, it's not turning a wildebeest into a cow, but it's, it's harvesting a wildebeest in a wildebeest wild natural environment. Okay, or, or utilizing the wildebeest. It may not even be harvesting it. And so a wildlife ranch then can produce a number of goods and services. And in the Southern African context, um, tourism is one of them. So many people go to private wildlife ranches to view the animals. Others, they go to shoot the animals, and that can be both, if you will, sport hunting. People that enjoy shooting a, a, a kudu, just like they would enjoy fishing for a sport fish off the coast of, um, say, Tanzania. And then there could be wildlife products, which I had referred to earlier, meat, hide, bones, um, gelatin. You could go on uh, that animals can provide into the marketplace. So the wildlife ranch industry, which in Southern Africa now is the majority owner of the wildlife, of the most wildlife in South Africa is in private hands, is wrapped around a combination of ecotourism, hunting, and products. And different ranches have different ranges. And live sales. People buy and sell these animals just like they sell livestock. The wildlife ranching sector, if you wanted to from an institutional perspective, could be grouped into three groups. The public sector, 
which includes your national park systems, which are wildlife ranches that primarily do tourism, but some do hunting and, and, and provide other products. Um, the second group is the private sector that I've been mostly talking about, and the third is a variant of that, which is community-based natural resource management structures where you have collective ownership in, at, at the community level. And in Africa, we have all three structures. We have public, private, and community wildlife ranching governance systems producing a variety of goods and services out of the production and management of wildlife. Now, you asked me about environmental impacts. In the Southern African model, in order to own a wild animal, you have to have it on your property. And in order for it to stay on your property, the property has to be fenced. And so very much tied into the whole legal property rights structure is fencing. Many, many years ago in America, when they got into this dealing with open ranges of cattle, we branded the cattle. In Southern Africa, they tend not to brand, they tend to fence. Now, fencing has challenges for, for conservation. It's not too much of a challenge for birds. It's not really too much of a challenge for plants. But it is a challenge for animals that need a wider range. And so for one good example of that is the impact of wildlife ranching fencing on cheetahs in Namibia. So cheetahs need a big space to move around. And even though some of these ranches are really big in Namibia, these wildlife ranches, they aren't big enough for the cheetah. So there's discussion about how do we create cat doors so the, ranch, so the cheetahs can run from one ranch to another and, and maintain a range. So fencing has its pros and cons. And then when you get into high-value animals, and sometimes you end up with fences within fences, and you start cordoning off your more fancy impala or wildebeest that are worth more in the marketplace. So there are ecosystem integrity challenges if you start fencing the landscape. And can you describe one success that you're familiar with, with how the wildlife economy has contributed to conservation and also generated financial investment returns? Well, there's a very, I mentioned the Nottens Bush Camp at the beginning. There was mom and dad running a little game farm. They had about 1,000 hectares, but I'll say where it was in a second. And they were putting their kids through school and everything. And so that was there was an economy. They, were, they had their livelihood out of it. And people would come, like myself, and spend the weekend. We'd drive off from Johannesburg and so on. Their 1,000 hectares was in something that's quite famous called the Sabi Sand Reserve. And the Sabi Sand Reserve is one of the oldest wildlife ranching areas in South Africa next to the Kruger National Park. And a couple of the major ranches were Ballamala um, and Landalozi. They're much bigger than a thousand hectares. Inside of the Sabi Sand, it was unfenced. So there was maybe a half a dozen or so different ranches there. Sabi Sand developed in part as a response to apartheid. Because what was happening back in the 50s and 60s is the government was starting to rezone land for tribal homelands. And they would look out in the landscape and they'd say, oh, these areas aren't productive. Nobody's using them. We can put that into homeland X or homeland Y. And this area was an area that had been a traditional hunting area. And the private farms where mostly people would come out from Johannesburg and Victoria and hunt. And they realized that if they were going to keep the area from being taken over by the government and turned into homeland property, they had to make them economically viable. So they set up a tourism lodges. So the tourism lodges were a way to prevent state control over their lands, and they started to build an economy around it. The irony then is that they ended up essentially turning this into a whole new business model for conservation, high-end 
tourism. Even when Nelson Mandela was released from prison, he was out at Sabi Sand in the first month. And this is even back then, it was $2,000 or more a night. Um, High-end tourism, specialized, people coming in, loads of money, loads of jobs, and so on. So they ended up creating way more jobs than if they'd have been turned over to some homeland government. Way more economic opportunities for local people, and it's all documented. And they expanded the ecological landscape for wildlife in the area. Now the fence between Sabi Sand and the Kruger National Park is down. So it's actually part of a broader ecosystem. So there you've had ecological, local community developments, and real export opportunities in South Africa all coming out of a ranching operation. Today, they mostly do tourism in that area. Some of the other reserves for the north, like the Timbavati, still get 70% of the revenues from hunting and about 30% from tourism. But they're all up and down the Kruger Park, and they've essentially expanded the ecological space for wildlife and made money out of it. Um, so what do you think might happen with species extinction or conservation if we're unable to create a robust wildlife economy in Africa? Well, if you um, don't have any real need for these animals, you're just going to get rid of them. And what we're seeing now in Kenya is a real decline in wildlife populations. Not because people are poor, but because people are more prosperous. Nairobi's booming, the economy's booming, and you know, when people get money, well, the first thing they do is they buy a car, but they also want better meat, they want better vegetables, they want building materials, they want clothes, and so on. So if you're a farmer out in the countryside in Kenya and you see this rising prosperity, you want to service it. And if you can't harvest the wildebeest and harvest the kudu, you're going to get rid of those and replace them with cattle and corn and cotton and whatever you can make, make an economy out of. Prosperity will kill wildlife if we don't make wildlife part of that prosperity. That's just what will happen. Flip it around, and this is the Kenyan government now has a consultative wildlife utilization task force actually looking at this and looking seriously at what are the options of introducing wildlife ranching, game farming, they even use the term game farming, in Kenya to encourage landowners to, to populate their land with wildlife in addition to or in place of livestock and, and make a living out of it. If you don't do that, what are the, what's, what's going to happen? Most of the rhinos that are left in Africa, the vast majority in South Africa, and the biggest chunk of that is in private hands. And there's one guy, I'm quite famous for his efforts, named John Hume, who currently owns about 1,800 rhinos. And he's built up his stock from about 100 over the last two decades. And now he has a, a really proper breeding stock that has the um, genetic diversity, getting 30, 40 new calves a year, and so on. And his plan was to actually build up the stock and sell horn to this Asian market. There's a billion customers out there that want to buy horn, sell them the horn. And he has a complete non-lethal business model, so he doesn't kill the animals at all. He just cuts off the horn, you get about a kilo a year, and it grows back, get another kilo, grows back, and so on. And you could actually have a non-lethal consumptive harvesting of horn, a bit like taking the hair off of a sheep and making wool sweaters out of it. Because there's no economy allowed in that, he can't export the horn. He's actually broke, and all his other rhino ranches are broke. The demand is still there. People really like this product. I don't know why, but they do. The demand overseas is there. The pressures are there that, that those animals are just going to disappear if they don't go into a legal trade. And it's quite likely they'll just go away if we don't figure out how to set up a governance system that would allow the value that is implicit in those animals to be captured and the revenues flow back to 
production of those animals and conservation of those animals across the continent. So in that particular case, if there isn't an economy around that animal, the wino, it's going to be very hard to see it live anywhere except in zoos in North America and Europe. So what market-based approaches to conservation or environmental problems are you not a big fan of or think that there's too much unsubstantiated hype around? Oh boy, that's an interesting question. Um, a, a big problem in the whole conservation world is that most of the financial flows in the conservation world are wrapped around grants, around charity. And then, so then people are trying to sort of do sort of market-based grants or market-based transfers that aren't really tied to real value creation or in which the property right and the ownership structures aren't really there. Payment for ecosystem services is an example. Yes, theoretically, a downstream recipient of an ecosystem service, like somebody downstream who gets water for their farm, should pay the, the forester upstream that keeps the trees on the mountainside so the water is collected into the river system and goes downstream. That's fine in theory, but the whole market for that, the relationship for that of um, how, who owns the river, who owns the water, the, the relationship between the farmer and the forester, who owns the forestry. It's, it's great to talk about in the classroom, but to actually operationalize that as a sort of market-based instrument isn't very easy. And it ends up being something that it's either sort of a, a almost a quasi-grant relationship, if anything, with the donors coming in and selling. That would be one. I would say some of these sort of schemes. I'm a little bit more cynical of carbon because I don't think it really, the carbon trading really addresses global warming, but carbon is a scheme in which some landowners are able to convince somebody in the north to give them money not to cut down their trees or not to cut down their mangroves and so on. It's sort of a payment system, but it's, it's, it's not fully a market system yet. But it's a way, you know, if, you, if you're a landowner and you, you own mangroves and you can convince somebody to say, um, give me money or I'll cut my mangroves down, I'll deforest my mangrove system. Well, then you've made a buck out of it. But having financial flows around people, paying people not to do bad things is not as lucrative as how markets work where you pay people to deliver things you want. You go to the restaurant and you buy dinner. You go to the movie theater and you buy a ticket to watch a movie. So um, looking for markets to encourage trade in goods is probably better than discouraging trades and bads, if you will. So what are some of the risks or challenges with the wildlife economy approach to conservation or environmental investing in Africa? Well, one of the, one of the big risks in Africa is governance and property rights. You can look at the model all you want in southern Africa and say, oh, we could apply that to Uganda or to Cameroon or whatever and try and figure out how to get a, an investment flow into it. What's the ownership right in those countries? What's, what's the right to own these resources? What are the export rights? So let's go back to rhino for a second. Obviously, there's a huge risk in investing in rhino production because we can't get the international market open. It's so close that a rhino owner in Namibia can't even export to South Africa. There's no trade in the country. So getting the risks include getting the property rights right and being clear about that, getting the, the marketing channels open. That's very clear that that's a very important issue. The other big risk is thinking that there's one particular return that I'm going to run my whole business model around. And the example I give, for example, is that John Hume 
In South Africa, I said, I'm going to make all my money out of the non-legal harvesting of a horn of an animal and sell it to a market that I can't access. So he took a big risk. He's in trouble. The East Africans, the Kenyans in particular, put everything in ecotourism. We're just going to make money out of having Europeans flying and look at these animals. So the rhino horn south, South Africa, and the ecotourism south, Kenya, are both putting the whole economy around one product. And probably what needs to be done is a mix, a bit of meat, a bit of hide. And the example I can give you is if you now to take it into livestock, you look at a country like Switzerland, they don't just have much cow tourism, but they have cow tourism, but they also have milk that turns into products like cheese and fondue. They also have meat. They also have hide. So they have a, a multi-use program out of their um, species. And that's what we, the way to reduce risk will be to do that. I think people that just look at investing in just the ecotourism or just the horn are taking a big risk. Why might investing in the wildlife economy in frontier markets be of interest to environmental investors? Because it's a way to preserve the landscape and preserve the wildlife. If you look at the conservation sector, how do you go out and buy some conservation today? I'm going to go invest in and buy some conservation. What do I do? Do I give money to IUCN, WWF, the UN Environment Program? And what do they do with the money? And what happens there? The wildlife economy is focused on actual utilization, consumptive, non-consumptive, of species to generate tangible benefits for consumers. And so as an investor goes, I'm going to invest in that ranch and I'm going to get a meat flow out of it, or I'm going to get a tourism flow out of it, or I'm going to get a hunting flow. And in doing that, I'm going to keep those animals on the landscape, and I'm going to keep the landscape natural and the ecosystem resilient. So big, big investment opportunity coming up in the future years in this continent is going to be, how do we take all these giant neo-colonial landscapes called national parks and keep them open? Right now, they're broke. They're all broke. And they run on tourism models that don't nearly cover the cost of operating them. Can we come up with more multi-use models for these large national parks like the Serengeti, like Kruger, uh, like the Masai Mar, and so on, that will then generate enough revenues to keep those landscapes open? If we don't, those national parks in another generation or two will end up in um, maize fields and cattle ranches and goat farming and what have you. Um, so thinking about your unique experiences in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors, I'd love to hear your perspective on what you think the role of governments versus the role of markets versus the role of civil society should be in solving environmental problems. Well, all three of those, markets, governments, and um, civil society, have a fundamental role in, in enhancing governance. Right now what we have is we have a problem of who's responsible, how things are managed, how things are regulated. We've got problems of corruption, we've got problems of transparency, problems of accountability, and so on. So there is really a big collective chore to improve the governance of, the, of wildlife um, systems, wildlife economies, wildlife production, and so on. In that context, I mean, I think there's a bit of room for, I go back to the landowner maybe, and so you've got, if you will, public land and private land, and, and somewhere, there's this complicated thing called community land, um, and that's a governance thing too. Does that really work? What is the community, and what does the community structure mean? But in your public lands, there's a real question of public management of these lands 
which essentially are managing things that are essentially private goods. How can you how can I explain this? So if you go to a national park, you pay an entrance fee. That means that it's excludable. It isn't a public good. It may be a public benefit, but you can charge a fee to go in. You could charge a fee for dinner. You could charge a fee for a walk and so on. How do these large public lands generate values effectively to cover the costs of maintaining those areas? What we're seeing increasingly is that those public lands are bringing private sector partners in. Now you bring a private sector in with a public agency, we're back to governance, corruption, accountability, transparency, and so on. With the private sector guys, how do you ensure that the ranching experience has ecosystem resilience? Is it a 200 hectare ranch or is it a 20,000 hectare ranch? And what does that mean for ecological values, ecosystem services, and so on? I think it's not so much what the public and private should do, but there's a common need for the stakeholders to work on this. Now in Southern Africa, and South Africa in particular, they're using the term biodiversity economy as the top term. And then it has two components, the wildlife economy, what we've been talking about, and a sort of, call it an access to genetic resources economy. They call it a biotrade economy, which is tied in with sort of genetic resource utilization and so on. And they are running consultations, they meaning the Department of Environment Affairs, which is the ministry there, are running consultations and workshops with civil society and private sector guys and government folks all together trying to sort this out. They said a meeting the other day, the president was there. So it really is a multi-stakeholder challenge to figure out how to grow this economy in a way that will be inclusive and be sustainable and responsible at this stage. What markets or geographical regions do you think hold some of the most promising opportunities for environmental investing over, say, the next 10 years? Well, my big interest here in Africa is actually the drylands. Um, if you can take drylands going all the way from southern Africa, from the Limpopo River and south of that, all the way up to the Mediterranean. What do we do with those drylands? One approach is we try and convert them into crop areas. We try and run cattle on them is another approach. Why not we populate Africa with its native species? And Africa becomes the wildlife exporter of the planet, and in, in particular, wildlife meat. I, I know there's a lot of discussion about the impact of meat on the environment and so on, but what that is usually focusing on is industrial meat production like we have in the United States and in Europe. And what we're talking about here is native, natural, indigenous meat production using native species that live on the land and so on. And I think there's huge opportunities to develop real economies in huge multi-million hectare landscapes across Africa um, that would provide food, real protein for the planet, food sources. I think from that is the, um, the value chains. of An example, a very popular restaurant in, you know, out of South Africa is called Nando's. It's a chicken restaurant. And they're hugely popular in the United Kingdom, but they're around the world. Could you imagine Kenya developing a wildlife version of Nando's where you don't go in and have a factory farm chicken, but you have a wild kudu, springbok, impala menu that um, now becomes a chain and people eat native meats produced by local people and so on and so forth, but commercialized like a Nando's chicken um, as a... Um, as a popular restaurant that could be spread across the continent. 
at the beginning, you had mentioned Kenneth Boulding and his influence on you. Do you have other experiences, books, or other media like articles, films, podcasts that have most influenced your thinking on sustainability and how to solve environmental challenges? I've worked a lot in the international policy space. My experiences on the ground are more real experiences than books, per se. But in the international policy space, I'd say there's three documents that I've found incredibly influential. One was written in 1980, and that's the World Conservation Strategy by IUCN, in which they define conservation as the management of the biosphere for human benefit. That was 1980. Now, they, they talk about, in that document, the World Conservation Strategy, living natural resources. It's pre the word biodiversity. The second, which is a, comes out of that, actually, uh, because the World Conservation Strategy called for an international agreement on living natural resources. The second is the Convention on Biological Diversity, which was launched in 1992 at the first Rio conference. It's absolutely a brilliant document. It starts out by saying, recognizing the economic, social, political, cultural values of biodiversity, recognizing that poverty alleviation is the overriding priority for developing countries. We therefore agree to, as the world, conserve biodiversity and use it sustainably. And on it goes with, with chapters on protected areas and on economic incentives and on sustainable use and so on. The thought that went into it is absolutely brilliant. Its rollout and implementation is a, is a whole other discussion. And then the third one, which I, I didn't think I'd ever say this, but I think in today's world, um, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, which again, I, you look at it and you say, how could our governments actually produce such a document? Because it's actually brilliant. Puts conservation, both marine and terrestrial conservation, including the sustainable utilization of marine and terrestrial resources into an integrated framework that's addressing poverty, gender equality, water, climate change, accountability, the role of international trade and finance and so on. And when you look at that document, you realize that wildlife conservation isn't something you sort of zone into a national park. Wildlife conservation is a core attribute of a sustainable economy, and that it's not something that's separate, and we do economy here and conservation there, but we actually conserve through use, and we develop our species through the wise management of other species. And those three documents together, I think, would be the first thing I would suggest people look at for what is a conceptualization of the role of our living planet in the way we are running the planet. Well, thanks so much, Frank. Thank you. I hope that wasn't too much of a tirade. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. This is a lot of fun, Aaron. Thank you. Show me how to find a better way. Thanks for listening to Environmental Investing. You can go to environmentalinvesting.com to find the links to this episode's show notes, as well as back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. And now a message from this episode's featured musical guest. Hello, this podcast episode is featuring music by Brooke Wagner, and I am Brooke Wagner. You can find my music at www.brookwagner.com. Sha
Keep me in your sight 